This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Leanne Digny and I'm a researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA here in Dublin. I am delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project, supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs, which aims to address, analyze and communicate to the wider public the EU's role in the world and Ireland's role in the multilateral order. A particular priority of the Global Europe project is Ireland's term as an elected member of the United Nations Security Council, which began in January 2021 and concluded at the end of last month, December 2022. I'm very pleased to be joined today by the permanent representative of Ireland to the United Nations, Ambassador Fergal Mythen, who has kindly agreed to share his reflections on Ireland's time on the Security Council. So Ambassador, welcome and thank you very much for joining me today. As you are well aware, um, the Security Council is made up of five permanent members and 10 elected members. As five elected members, including Ireland, have just concluded their term in December of 2022, five new states have now begun their term this week. So how does that handover happen and what role did Ireland play in onboarding the incoming members? Thank you very much, Leanne. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you from New York. And I just want to thank the IAEA for this initiative. It's, it's really, really good to capture our reflections as we come off the Security Council. As for coming off the Council, it's very much a case of you're a member or you're not a member. So right until 12 midnight on the 31st of December, we were a member and we were working away uh, on, on files that were still active, in particular the Syria cross-border humanitarian access file. Um, and then, you know, 1201, we're no longer a member. Um, and the, the changeover is very, very informal. There is a, a flag ceremony for new members, the new incoming five members. Other than that, our powers drain away. Um, in terms of onboarding the, the incoming members, we spent the last three months working with those five, um, Ecuador, Japan, Mozambique, Malta and Switzerland, working with our teams at all levels, my level uh, and across our experts, just uh, briefing them on our work, briefing them on our experiences and our learnings. Uh, we did so also at capital to capital level so that when they do come on board, they're very much aware of what we learned um, and that would have been particularly intensive where individual member states are taking over files that we were working on. So, for example, Switzerland uh, was taking over our role in relation to this area cross-border mechanism. So, therefore, our engagement has been very, very intensive over these past few months. In addition, uh, a recent innovation is for incoming members to have observer status for the last three months before they actually go on the council. That's something that we, we really... Uh, benefited from two years ago and that's that innovation has worked very very well so it's 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 there's a formal element of preparation but also an awful lot of informal engagement across the board with the incoming members brilliant um so i suppose just to turn to one of the big issues uh that comes up every year i suppose but particularly mm -hmm. i think in 2022 was the idea of reform in the security council I know that Ireland was particularly vocal about the need to reform the use of the veto power on the council mm -hmm. and uh, supported uh, things such as the Liechtenstein veto initiative last year. I was wondering if you could maybe just explain that a little bit and um, just tell us if you think that that initiative has been in any way effective. Yeah, I, I think it, it's fair to say reform has, has 
has been a, a topic on the, the, the UN's agenda for the last 30 years. Uh, and what do we mean by reform of the Security Council? I think there's two particular areas. One, it, representation, particularly in terms of permanent members. The permanent five are Russia, US, France, China, and UK. And that's very much a reflection of the, of the end of the Second World War uh, and the, the great powers that were in play at that point, 1944-46. Um, and that hasn't changed. So there's, there's five permanent members and 10 uh, rotating members elected across the globe on a, on a, on a two-year basis. Uh, and I think there's a very strong feeling, very much shared by us, that you know that is no longer representative of the world you know we live today. And you know, for example, there's no permanent member from Africa. Uh, there's no permanent member from Latin America. Uh, so that's a real problem. And then, of course, the use of the veto. The permanent five, the P5, have a veto across all the work of the Security Council. And we saw that in play. I think during our time in the Council, the veto was used five times, uh, including in relation to Ukraine. Uh, and in relation to our our initiative on on climate and security, where Russia vetoed our initiative, so in that scenario, there was all I think 113 member states co-sponsored our resolution, and yet one one country, one member state could veto it, being a, a permanent five. So, you know, in our view, that that is anachronistic, and obviously, it's a real problem when we have an aggressor state uh, being one of the P5 using that veto against its actions, uh, it's completely unlawful and unacceptable actions in Ukraine. So I think that in particular has brought the issue of Security Council reform right to the top of the agenda. And we've seen some really strong, important uh, interventions in that space, particularly by the US ambassador to the UN, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield in September, and also President Biden at the General Assembly in September. And that was echoed by many, many world leaders, including our, our then Taoiseach Michal Martin, and just a call for reform of both the representation and particularly the veto. Will that go anywhere? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to be optimistic. As I say, this issue has been knocking around the UN you know, for the last 30 years. Uh, most member states feel it's anachronistic. Most member states, states feel there's a real, real need for reform of the Security Council. And yet it's not necessarily in the interest of, of the P5 to, to, to allow that to happen. In fairness to some member, P5 members, France and the UK have voluntarily not used the veto since the 1990s or late 80s. Uh, US tries to use it sparingly. China uses it sparingly enough as well. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's hard to see, you know, all P5 members agreeing to a radical, you know, overhaul of the veto. Um, in terms of, of representation, again, there's, there's agreement across the board that it needs to be more representative, but what that means in, in, in practice in terms of who should, be, who should be the additional permanent members, there's a lot of debate and a lot of disagreement. So you, you can see uh, in many ways that the scope for reform is limited. And I think that's why the, the veto initiative by Liechtenstein was really, really important. What was that? It was basically saying that whenever the Security Council use the veto whenever a p5 member used the veto then that issue must be brought to the general assembly where all member states sit and and in a sense be held accountable for the use of the veto uh, and we were hugely supportive of and co-sponsored that initiative by Liechtenstein. it has been used a number of times including most recently in relation to ukraine uh, and in that scenario 143 member states condemned the use of the veto and condemned um the 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 
the issue you know that was being addressed which was the, the breach of the charter by the by by the russian federal federation in relation to uh, ukraine so i think it's a really important uh, initiative whereby the membership of the un can hold the p5 to account can hold the use of the veto to account there's another initiative in play uh, being pushed by france uh, and, and mexico in the last security council whereby all member states would agree not to use the veto in relation to you know um, issues of, of mass violations of the UN Charter, atrocities, etc., uh, and that hasn't you know it hasn't landed because of Russia, I would say, uh, because of some of the P5 members. But it's an initiative where whereby we can actually try to restrict the use of the veto. So while we may not see huge progress in relation to overall reform initiatives like the, the veto initiative, initiatives like the, the, the French-Mexican initiative may get some traction in terms of just limiting the use of the veto and making sure the Security Council is, is, is um, its credibility is not called into question by the use of that veto. So we're seeing some steps, but as you say, we probably shouldn't be holding our breath to see massive uh, reforms. Yeah, I, yeah. look, I, I, I think there's you know, there's inertia there when it suits some of the P5 mm. uh, and it's hard to see that changing in the short term. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and we'll be, we'll be supportive of, of efforts at the UN General Assembly level to, to, to drive that debate forward, to drive on discussions around, around reform of the Security Council. Um, because, you know, there are issues of credibility of the Security Council in this scenario. As I say, particularly when, you know, one of the P5 is, is the aggressor. And it's very, very clearly so, and is using the veto to to shield itself from from sanction and accountability. Uh, but also in a scenario whereby the, the Security Council just does not look like the world as it is today, as opposed to what it was in 1945-46. Yeah, no, you've made a completely valid point as well about representation on the Security Council. And, and somewhat relatedly to that, I just wanted to ask you about... When Ireland is sitting on the Security Council, you Ireland is, of course, representing its own values and its own principles, but also as an EU member state, you're also kind of representing the shared values of the EU. So how does that work in practice? Yeah, it, it's that's a very important point. We're there as an individual member state. We're there as Ireland. We're elected as Ireland. We're not elected on the EU slate or anything like that. And yet um, we're a, we're a mem core member of the European Union. And we bring those values, and the Euro European Union uh, is central to our foreign policy. Um, so there's a very, very strong caucus in relation to Security Council business. Uh, as a serving EU member on the Security Council, we would stay in ongoing daily contact with the EU and EU member states in relation to the work of the Security Council. Um, you know, this year we we and France were, were the, the two EU member states on the Security Council. Last year, we shared that with Estonia. This year, uh, we'll be replaced by Malta. Uh, and as I say, we work very, very closely. But we do take our instructions and directions from Dublin, not from Brussels. Uh, and I think that's important. Um, we do try to work in tandem uh, as best we can. So for example, this year, um, in the last few months, I gave a statement, a press statement, uh, outside Security Council to the media on behalf of EU member states in relation to Israel-Palestine. And, you know, so that was an example of where, where the EU member state on Security Council would speak on and, and represent the views of the European Union. Um, likewise, this year we took forward 
and secured renewal of the mandate for the EU operation in Bosnia, uh, Operation Altea. Uh, and that was a very, very important piece of work for us, but also for the European Union. And obviously we worked in very, very close collaboration. So it's, it's, it's not a formal role in terms of our, our, our role in Security Council, but it's a very, very strong part of, of, of our values and our principles and our stances on the Security Council. And I say we, we, we keep extremely uh, closely involved and engaged with, with EU member states. Uh, you know, and every Tuesday morning, I would, have, I would have briefed the EU and its member states on the work of the Council for the previous week and for the forthcoming week. We also had uh, staff um, shared deployments, as it were, uh, our expert on Europe and, and Bosnia in particular was Maura Kloon, who was an EU, EU official, and she, she was deployed to us for the, the duration of our membership in the Council. So there's plenty of informal linkages there as well. Brilliant. Um, I know Ireland also really stood out for its very strong commitment to including civil society in its work um, on the Council. Ireland brought a record number of 16 women to civil, mm -hmm. civil society briefers to the council during its presidency in September 2021 and really engaged with civil society throughout the rest of its term. Are you hopeful that Ireland has set an example that will now be followed by both the incoming elected members, but also the permanent members? We certainly hope so. Uh, and uh, this is an issue that was really, really important to us to bring the voice of civil society briefers, you know, people active on the ground in conflict situations, bringing them right into the heart of the Security Council and briefing directly, directly uh, Security Council members. And in some ways, COVID facilitated that because we got a lot more used to, to Zoom video briefings across the board. We had to get used to that uh, in the first five, six months. Um, and, and since then, we've ensured that that practice can continue. So whether the civil society briefer is in person Security Council or is, is, is Zooming in, as it were, from from whatever part of the world, it's a really, really important point. And for us, you know, our vision of how the Security Council works and responds to international peace and security is really rooted to listening to and taking account of the views of civil society voices, not just UN uh, Secretariat uh, representatives, not just member states, but civil society. And uh, we know that from our own experience. I spent a lot of my career working on Northern Ireland peace process issues. We know the role and the value of civil society. And we really wanted to bring that into the Security Council and to hear different perspectives. We did that, as you say, during our presidency in September 2021. Uh, we had 17 civil society briefers and 16 of those were women. So it was just very, very important to ha have those voices. And we feel, you know, that certainly other, certainly elected mem member states have taken that practice on board and have ensured uh, a strong representation of civil society briefers. And we have no doubt that the incoming five, you know, have seen the value of that and will take that forward into the work. So in a sense, trying to hardwire that into the work of the Security Council, mainstream it to ensure those voices are at the table. It's hugely important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Security Council itself could certainly be referred to as the, the top table of, of global diplomacy. Um, I wonder, do you think that the Irish public have now become a bit more engaged or have developed a deeper understanding of multilateral diplomacy because of Ireland's term and, and the work that Ireland has done on the Security Council? It's, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a hard question to answer. Um, I, I would hope it has and I would sense it has. Um, and I think some of that may have been driven by, by crises, by the crisis in Afghanistan, and then obviously the crisis in Ukraine. 
Um, and I think the, the visuals of Sir Minister of Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, going to Bucha in, in, in Ukraine, seeing the mass graves, seeing what has happened there, and then bringing and directly to the Security Council, and then that being beamed into, into Irish homes and living rooms. I think that was very impactful. Likewise, again, when, when he went to Odessa and saw the Grain Initiative, which is very important for, for, for the global food security, again, brought that straight into the Security Council to have uh, our then Taoiseach Michal Martin speaking about the, the, the real crises facing the world and speaking from the General Assembly in, in, in September. And again, seeing that beamed in, I, I think it has been impactful. We've really sought, sought to use uh, communications, particularly social media, Twitter, uh, to, in a sense, demystify the Security Council, to break open the walls of the Security Council, to get away from jargon and to explain what it is we're really trying to do. Um, it's not just words on page, it's not just changing commas or inserting a, a word here or there, it's actually impactful. I mean, I mentioned the, the Syria cross-border humanitarian uh, access point. Four million people in northeast Syria rely on that day in, day out. Uh, it has been impacted by geopolitics, but we've been able to negotiate and secure the continuance of that. Uh, and we hopefully will see a renewal of that in, in the coming week. So that, that's impacting and forming in people. Likewise, the humanitarian carbon for UN sanctions regimes. And we saw the, the global response of a number of aid agencies, Trocra Concern, International Cross, and how important this is to ensure that, that um, civilian populations aren't, aren't impacted by UN sanctions regimes. So for us, really, really important, really impactful. And we tried to bring that to people's attention using social media by explaining what it is we're doing, and particularly by get by interviewing and you know profiling people on the ground who are who are telling us that this is required. So not just diplomats sitting here in New York saying this is a good thing, but actually people on the ground in Syria, in Ethiopia, in Ukraine, in Yemen, in Bosnia saying actually this work is really important. The mandates uh, given by the Security Council are really really important, uh, and I think. We hope we've done that. We hope that will continue. RTE now has a, a, a reporter here based at, at in New York uh, focusing on global security, Yvonne Murray. So we hope that will continue to show that actually, um, you know, the UN, for all its flaws, for all its challenges, for all its difficulties, is a really, really important part of a, a rules-based world system, a multilateral system. What does that mean? It means that might is not right that big countries don't just do what they want to do and that, you know, that every member state of the UN, you know, abides by rules uh, agreed by the international community uh, and might is not right. And for us, and I suppose this is really important, why do we, why are we at the UN? Why do we go for membership of the Security Council once every 20 years? Why do we go for regular membership of the UN Human Rights Council? It's because we believe in that, in that, in that multilateral system. It's not just our values, it's also our interests. You know, we're a small island bobbing around the Atlantic. For us, it's really, really important that this world is based on, on specific rules of engagement. That's been our, our, our driving force since 1923 when we joined the League of Nations. The 1937 Constitution, Von Rock Heron spoke about the Pacific settlement of, of, of disputes. It's been hardwired into our foreign policy from day one. And for us, contributing to that system, strengthening it, making sure it's responsive, 
and stepping up and taking our place on the Security Council and trying to make a difference is really, really important. It's not just about our values, it's also about our interests. They're really intertwined. Uh, and for us, we hope that our term on the Security Council um, has reached into people's homes in Ireland to show what it is we're trying to do and what it is we're trying to do on the, on the behalf of the people of Ireland. Uh, and we believe that it's been very much in sync with the values of the Irish people in relation to peacekeeping, in relation to humanitarian endeavour, in relation to, to peace and security across the globe. It, it's, it's part of who we are as people, always has been. And for us, in playing our part, even though it can be difficult on occasion, even though there's no hiding space on many, many issues, even though on occasion we've had to speak out on issues like Ethiopia, which has caused difficulty with the Ethiopian government, it's just really important for us to, to play that role, to be brave, to be principled, and to help ensure that the UN system uh, continues to grow and develop and strengthen. It's really, really in our interests as well as our values. Yeah, absolutely. And just picking up on what you said about demystifying the whole system, I think Ireland has actually been very, very good at that. And it's been very effective through social media. And we've certainly seen that and followed that here at the, at the IIEA. Um, Fergal, if I could ask you a big and possibly difficult question, um, I'd yeah. love to know what you think was Ireland's biggest achievement while it sat on the Security Council. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a hard one because there are, there's so, we've worked in so many, many areas. I think, I mean, I've mentioned a few. I think the, 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 the carve out, the exemption for humanitarian delivery in relation to UN sanctions is really, really impactful. It, it just affects millions of people. What does that mean? I mean, the UN sanctions regime is very, very important, tackling, you know, um, bad actors around the world, Horn of Africa, Yemen, etc. But when a sanctions regime is put in place, many businesses, banks, etc., don't want to get involved. So humanitarian agencies find it really difficult to, to do their business, to get aid in, to get access to finance, and to bring aid to those people who need it most. And so for us, taking away that difficulty and allowing humanitarian actors to work across the globe in some of the most challenging environments in the world really means something uh, and will have a long-term lasting impact. I think speaking out in Ukraine has been just really, really important. Um, what Russia has done is just appalling, uh, but it's also, in human terms, but it's also a huge breach of the UN charter and, and, and its fundamental principles. And for us, standing up for those principles day in, day out, in the Security Council Chamber has been really, really important. I think there's been 50 meetings on Ukraine, um, no resolution, no, very little product, very little action, but just standing up for those principles day in, day out is just really, really important and testimony. And again, having the minister bring his experience from Bucha, from Odessa, right into the Security Council Chamber um, is important. Um, I think in relation to peacekeeping, we brought forward and scored a resolution for the first time on transitions and peacekeeping operations. What does that mean? It means that as peacekeeping operations by the UN come to an end, that is an important sustainable transition in terms of, of, of local government, local actors, civil society, ensuring that UN operations don't just leave, step away, and a situation reverts to what it was before or has unintended negative consequences. So that's very, very important for us because for us, peacekeeping is a huge part of the UN mandate. It's a huge part of our UN membership and ensuring that 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 the transition away from peacekeeping operations across the world, including in Africa, um, 
are, are sustainable and important. So that for us is very, very important. Speaking out on Ethiopia was very important. Um, the conflict there, huge humanitarian catastrophe, huge conflict, over 500,000 deaths. I mean, just extraordinary. And, and in some ways, because of what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Afghanistan, maybe it's not getting the coverage that it, that it deserved to get. Uh, but we, we, we insist on bringing that to the Security Council, insisted on shining a light on it, insisted on, on, on calls for humanitarian access, uh, ceasefire, peace negotiations. Um, we got there recently uh, and there was a peace agreement. Uh, we hope it will be sustained and implemented, uh, but we feel our work on that issue, not shying away from it, not hiding it, was really, really important in bringing the actors to the, to the, to the negotiating table. So they're just some of the areas uh, there were other areas that we feel maybe didn't weren't, weren't didn't get quite as much notice, uh, but were very very important. I think our disappointment was a disappointment that we always expected. Um, we spoke uh, and shone a light on the situation in the Middle East, uh, the failure to to have serious engagement on a two state solution for Palestine and Israel. I think it's an ongoing ongoing shame um, that there isn't more done. We, we, we worked uh, really closely with the UN representative Tor Venisland to make sure that the issue was on the, on the UN Security Council table you know, every month, but because of geopolitics, etc., cetera, uh, the Security Council hasn't been able to take a, as an active interest in trying to bring about you know, renewed negotiation in that space. We always knew it was going to be difficult. We never shied away from it. Uh, but I think it's a source of, of ongoing concern that that situation in, in Israel and Palestine continues and the Security Council has been able to be more effective in that space. Well, certainly not an exhaustive list, but you, you've highlighted some extraordinary achievements there um, from Ireland over the past two years. So maybe looking to the future now, the, the SDG summit in September uh, 2023 this year will mark the, the midpoint of the implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And Ireland has actually played a very central role in the development of the yeah. SDGs in, in 2015. And now you've been appointed by the president of the UN General Assembly to co-facilitate and lead consultations on the political declaration of the SDGs, uh, the SDG summit during the next uh, 77th session of the UN General Assembly. Could you tell us a little bit more about that role and have you already jumped right into it, even though you've just finished up a couple of days ago on the council? Yeah, the, the Sustainable Development Goals are a really important initiative by the UN, I just said 2015. What are they? they? They speak about a world of no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education for all, gender equality, um, sustainable communities, climate action. So a real agenda for, for change leading up to 2030. Those goals have gone off track. There's a real sense here in New York, but globally that, that you know, we're, we're not meeting the targets we need to meet in relation to that. And we can, we can, we can point to reasons like the pandemic, uh, like the, the war in Ukraine and the impact on global food security. Uh, but we really want to work in the coming year to get those goals back on track to kind of reinvigorate them uh, and to bring the focus of the UN and the global system back onto those goals and not to let them just, just, just go by the wayside. Uh, so we were asked to take on this role, which basically means we prepare uh, uh, working with the, with the Qatari ambassador and her team. We 
engaged in consultations over the next few months, building to the preparation of a political declaration that would be endorsed by world leaders at the SDG summit in September here in New York. So in a sense, it's trying to build a coalition of, of support for, for the SDGs. Not that we're changing the SDGs, they're, they're in a sense cast in stone from 2015, but are there renewed actions, initiatives uh, that can really drive implementation forward and get them back into a, into a good space for implementation. And that's our work, it won't be easy. Uh, because there's 193 member states here, uh, you get into issues around climate change, you get into issues around climate financing, and financing is always a difficult issue at the UN table. Uh, but for us, it's really important. It, 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 it continues the work uh, taken forward by, by Ambassador David Dunahoo back in 2015. And obviously, it's a core part of our, our um, development vision. Uh, in relation to, to Ireland's work in that space. So it's really, really important for us. And it, it, in a sense, um, we have, in a sense, it connects very well with, with our work on the Security Council, including in relation to climate and security. So we see it as a kind of, uh, as a co continuum. Uh, we have started work, we started initial consultations. It is going to be difficult. There are a lot of um, points of resistance, uh, but I think it's very, very important for us to be in this space to, 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 to reconnect with these really, really important goals. Absolutely. Um, well, on that note, I'd just like to say thank you very much for joining us today, Fergal. And on behalf of the IAA, I would just like to commend you and the, the department and on all of the team on all of the incredible work that Ireland has done over the last two years and to, to congratulate you on all of the, the hard fought achievements, some of which have been mentioned here, as you said, and some of which we, we have not been mentioned, but they're clear that they'll have a lasting impact on the work of the Security Council. So I'd also like to wish you and, and the team the best of luck as you continue your important work at the UN in New York. So thank you very, very much. Thank you very much, Leanne. If I could just, just acknowledge here the work of the team in New York, absolutely phenomenal from start to finish, both through the campaign, the transition uh, preparation phase, and for the last few years, and working right up the end, right, right up to the 31st of, of December in relation to some files. So they've been phenomenal. Uh, and also the, the coordination with our HQ in Dublin, with the Department of Foreign Affairs. I know you've done some podcasts with, with, with Sonia Hyland and Liz McCullough, but just really great coordination and great political support. I mentioned uh, Tishik Michal Martin, Foreign Minister Simon Coveney, just, just huge political support for what we've been trying to do here. So a real, a real team effort, Team Ireland, and it's been, it's, been, it's been great to be a part of it. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Europe Project or listen back to other podcasts in the Global Europe podcast series, you can check out our website or social media. Thank you. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe Project.